Okay, so 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience and ex as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. God, we know that we are not good enough in ourselves to even understand your word, so we ask for you, Holy Spirit, to come and help teach us what your word means. We ask as we bring our lives to this text that we would leave changed for the better, that we would be more in love with you, more in love with what you're doing in this world, and just be more in awe on how much you love us, we pray in your name. Amen. So as I said um, earlier, we have three sermons that are all kind of about um, uh, what our identity is as Christians, and this one is gospel-formed. What does it mean to be a gospel-formed people? And just think of this. Maybe this situation has happened to you before. Uh, you just had a really long day. Your boss at work is breathing down your neck. Your work colleagues are slacking off a bit. And not only are you having to do more of the work, you're actually like getting more of the flack. It's the best of both worlds. You're so busy that you forgot even to eat lunch. And when you finally drag yourself home, the kids are kicking off and you get into an argument with your partner. You just think, I don't need this. I don't, I'm better than this. I don't deserve this. And there you are, energy sapped, down, feeling alone, with so many little bits taken out of you during the day, you wonder if there's anything left. Who do you turn to? What do you turn to? What do you do then? How do you fix that problem that you're feeling? How do you even cope or recover? Is your prescription maybe like mine tends to be, just turn on Netflix and kind of zone out? God, I just need a good beer and Netflix, a good Netflix show, and I am good to go, and I'll be fine tomorrow. Or maybe is it to like to puff up to yell a bit and to storm out to the nearest pub and have a drink? Or is it to try and spend more time at work than to spend time at home because you know work problems are much easier than home problems? Or you just like shake your head, shrug your shoulders, just tell yourself, well, that's life, and just kind of give up. Well, times like these, in those kind of moments, we know that we're broken. We get that we're broken. We get that we're not kind of complete in ourselves. But how do we go about fixing it? That's the hard question. We're all incomplete, and we all trust in other things to make it okay. That trust that we have in other things to make it okay, that's called worship. So we all worship something. It may not feel very spiritual, but it is. It's very spiritual. That's what we call worship. And the trust we have in something shapes us. We are formed by the trust that we have in other things. So if I always trust in beer to make things okay, not only will I be like physically formed because I have a massive beer gut to make, to make everything all right, but my life will generally be shaped in probably not the most healthiest of ways. <laughs> if I'm always thinking of how can I just make things okay by having a good beer. And I make sure it's a craft brew so no one thinks I'm a really an alcoholic. 
If our family is the answer to make us feel new, what kind of people will we become? We'll have pressure on others to come through for us in ways they were never meant to, and when they let us down, we will let them know and we'll shame them and guilt them for it. What we worship changes us, it forms us, it affects the kind of people we are becoming. So for the Christian, we are formed by the story of God from beginning to end. God's good story is what we call the Gospels. That's why we're talking about being Gospel-formed. And as followers of Jesus, we ought to be Gospel-formed. That's who we are if we follow Jesus. And this is what Paul talks about in our text here, if you can read it under the low light. So what we have here in uh, 1 Timothy is a letter from an older man to a younger one, kind of like a mentor-mentee relationship, about the church, about the faith, uh, and, and very specific instructions on how the faith ought to be worked out in kind of the local context. And this is really fitting for us because we are a young church, barely newborn, trying to figure out what the gospel means and how to work that out in our local context. And if we, all of us, are being formed by many things, the question for us is God's story is the gospel of first importance for us as we set up this new church. In the face of an authoritarian culture, in the face of family traditions, in the face of tragedy or success and money or lack of success and lack of money, and in the face of belief in ourselves, in the face of belief in others, of just being nice to people, what kind of people are we becoming? Because we are broken and incomplete and in need of wholeness, we're always going to be looking for something to make us new. Only the gospel, the story of Jesus and what he's done for us, gives us what we need. It is our hope the hope of the world, and it's for the glory of God. So let's give you the main three headings we're going to look at. What does it mean for it to be our hope, the hope of the world, and how is it for the glory of God? So let's first start with the um, our hope section. So Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's really the main kind of verse we're going to be looking at here. Um, what does that mean? Well, that first is our hope. Is it coming there? Maybe Will, if you could just, yeah, as it goes. Um, so the story of our hope begins not while we were good, not while we were clever, but while we were ignorant. Not while we were seeking God, but while we were not following, while we were not believing in him and even caring about him. We were clueless. We were blindfolded, but we had keys to a car, and we think that we knew it all, so we try and drive that car, and we wonder why we keep crashing that car over and over and over again. Blind people should not drive. Blindfolded people should not drive cars. So in this predicament, Jesus rescues us. He saw us in our distress, how we're going to completely wreck our cars over and over and over again, and doesn't want us to stay there. So he reached down into our individual lives and rescued us. That's what salvation means. It means rescue. That's what it means. So only those in danger need rescuing. And we were in danger. But really, our individual story is something that fits into like a much larger, much grander, cosmic kind of story. Because it starts at the beginning of this. I can move without... It starts at the beginning of this book in Genesis and ends all the way in Revelation. So all of these stories are all talking about this wonderful gospel that God allows us to be a part of. We were created good. This world was created good. Then we thought God was holding out on us. So we decided to disobey him and hide ourselves from him and do our own thing. And that broke the perfection that God created. Now we as humans found ourselves in a predicament that we were not able to fix ourselves. We were broken. But God didn't keep us that way. He could have, but he didn't. He put into action a huge story that one day would culminate in him taking on our flesh, looking like us, and moving into our neighborhood. And the Old Testament, which is most of your Bible, is a story of God's promises to broken people. 
And then that culmination of God taking flesh, that was Jesus who stepped into our lives. While remaining God, he also became human like us so that he could fix everything and make the world right again. The New Testament is a story of God's promises delivered to broken people. And in Revelation, in this very last book that we have, which is really hard to understand sometimes, we're told of a time where the whole world will be made right, where all of our longings will be fulfilled, where God's glory will be made known throughout the whole earth. So what we're talking about isn't just an individual story, it's a cosmic story from the very beginning to whatever the ending of the world looks like. The largest story the world has ever known, actually such that the world can kind of barely contain in itself. And this eternal story comes to a sharp point in everyone who follows Jesus, making its way into our hearts. Jesus lived the perfect life, was killed on a cross, and rose again because death couldn't keep him down. And so then, those of us who follow that God, who follow Jesus, we are united to him in all those aspects. And it affects our past, our future, as well as our present. And because of Jesus, death will not keep us down. So I want to run through how the gospel, our hope, is all-encompassing. So I want to first talk about how it affects our past. So in our past, if you could uh, go to the next slide there. So we have our past. In the past, we're given a new status. If we follow Jesus, everything we've done, everything we do is forgiven because of Jesus' death. Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Now, Maybe you don't feel like you are afraid of condemnation or you don't really feel like condemnation. Basically, if you feel shamed for anything, that is a, the feeling of what condemnation is. So there is no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that sounds impossible. Because, and this sounds too good to be true because we know we do things that are shameful. But if you're in Christ, you're already forgiven. We sang about it already. It's a one-time, once-for-all thing. And you don't have to live in shame or in guilt. Like Paul, you can be free to talk about where you don't measure up. Paul is very honest about where he didn't measure up. It's very freeing to be able to do that. But our guilt, our shame has been nailed to the cross as Jesus died the death we deserve. So we've been given a new status. Now, as in the future, we've been given a new world. So our past is taken care of, and as is our future. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, eternal life, by definition, is abstract. It's like, oh yeah, that's great. I think, what is that exactly? Um, well, here's a way to put it. Every longing you've had, every hope, every ache you have in this world, everything will be made right. And one day you will be able to live without the melancholy that you feel on this earth. You will live without bitterness. You will live without the frustration. That's what eternal life looks like. That's what our hope looks like. Or think of the best day that you've ever had. Whatever that memory might be, maybe it was with parents or family or friends or whatever it might have been. Um, that is but the smallest taste, the incomplete kind of spoonful of the meal that's awaiting for us eventually. We don't have to prove ourselves good for it. We already get it because of what Jesus has already done. So if I knew I had millions of pounds in the bank waiting for me, surely the anxiety I have when I look at my current balance now would be affected. I know that in when I'm 60 or whatever, I'm going to come into these millions of pounds. So I may not have a lot now, but I'm not going to be super anxious about my own lack of money now because I know in the future there's a great thing waiting for me. That means we are all beyond rich. Our past is clean. Our future is bright. And this is what it means for Jesus to save sinners. He doesn't do anything kind of halfway. He's all in. So we've been given a new world. Now notice we have the past on one side, the future on the other, there's this kind of glaring gap in the middle. There's the present. This is the hard part of believing, actually, is the present. 
There's often a big gap. Okay, yeah, I've been forgiven. Okay, cool. There's like a thing in the future waiting for me. Those are both things I don't experience right now. And they're kind of abstract and I can basically say I believe them and my life doesn't really change. How does the gospel speak to our present? We already talked about shame uh, and that's, that's part of it, but let, maybe let's press in a little bit more. The other day I was talking with Colin and, um, about how he shouldn't have done something or how he should have listened to us or something like that. Um, and uh, my first go-to is to talk about how important it is for him to listen and for him to obey. And, I'm, and I say, oh, I'm very glad you said you're sorry. Next time we can try and do better. But if I end it there, that's not really hopeful. The gospel doesn't just speak to the past or the future. It speaks to the present. So I told him, this is one of the few times that I maybe did really good parenting. I told him, I know it's hard to listen when you're sad and when you're angry. I get that. I'm the same way, bud. That's hard for me too, but we can ask Jesus to help us. We can tell him it's hard, and when we don't want to listen, we can ask him to change us. We say, won't you change me? And Jesus, in that moment, can affect us, can change us, can allow us to be the kind of people that we want to be. So in the present today, now, we are given new hearts. We're provided for with everything that we need, everything we will ever need. So if God the Father gave us his son at great cost to himself, surely he's going to provide for everything else we need now. The good news of Jesus means for all those who are in him, we are provided for. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. It's here. It's what we get to be a part of. We have the ability now to live the way we truly want to. And more than that, to even desire that. It's not just kind of outward, grit our teeth and try and be good people. It's a desire to be able to live as good people. God's desires become ours. So we get freed from living for ourselves, freed for living for pride or sex or money. And we actually get enabled to live for something bigger, something greater than that. And we still will make mistakes, but we're now no longer slaves to them. This is because God himself comes to dwell within us as the Holy Spirit. So through him, we're freed from that power of brokenness, freed to live for goodness. And the Bible says that for all who follow Jesus, they have become something new. They become a new creation. That's what we get to be. That's what we are. We're a new creation because we've been given new hearts. So a new status, a new world, a new heart. Our past, our future, and our present, all rescued by Jesus himself. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what that means. And that was just... 10 minutes. We could go on and on and on. But this is the gospel. This story is our hope. So that is the story of what the gospel is. Let's talk now about what it isn't. Because there are many imposter stories out there that attempt to parade like the gospel or attempt to, or they, they promise to deliver good things, but they don't really come through. Like the emperor with no clothes, they all lack substance and leave us incomplete and maybe a little bit embarrassed. So there's, here's just maybe four um, possible other stories that we can easily fall into and a lot of us are kind of part of. So one is a tolerant culture. Now, no one wants to be intolerant. Tolerance is a good thing. There are lots of good parts to a tolerant culture. Don't know what just happened there. We'll figure it out. Um, but often what uh, a tolerant culture can mean is uh, if you, you must think a certain way defined by tolerance, you must believe a certain way defined by tolerance, you must feel a certain way defined by tolerance. It's all right, we'll get there. Um, so it, being tolerant is good, but it's just not 
good enough. We need something even better than tolerance. We need something even better. What about being true to yourself? Well, of course that sounds good. Who wants to be like wrong to yourself? No one says, I want to grow up and completely give up on my dreams and be wrong to myself. No one wants to be false. So, but to locate the, the solution to an inward problem in the same place where we find the problem just isn't going to get us anywhere. If we are incomplete, it was like, you know, I just need to be true to myself, then we're just going to be true to incomplete selves. It, being true to yourself is good, but we need something better than that. And then maybe we might do the Christian thing, which is try harder, to grit your teeth, to be more holy, to read your Bible more and pray more, keep your head down and just kind of plot along. That's as if we have the strength within us to affect the change we really want to see. We easily overestimate our strengths and downplay our weaknesses. I don't know if you're like that at all. I'm a little bit like that. And if we can accomplish life by ourselves, our vision is far too small. What a lame vision that must be if it's something that you can fix by yourself. I want to be something bigger than that. We can never try hard enough by ourselves. And then there's also a um, feeling of spirituality, here we are, without actual spiritual stuff going on. Um, uh, we often want to feel spiritual. Um, we want to be mindful. We want to practice meditation. And some of those things are great. In fact, they're really helpful, especially in the moment for calming um, ourselves down. There's things that we do of, of, of kind of that nature. But they're just not good enough in themselves to solve a cosmic problem. So we should be tolerant, we should be true to ourselves, we should try hard, and we should do these kind of mindful kind of practices as much as they help us. But all those are just mere coping mechanisms. They don't actually grow us to where we need to be. They can be helpful in circumstances, but they don't have the power to bring life to what is dead itself. So what does the gospel look like in normal life? Well, one is an ongoing discovery of how Jesus rescues us and brings us to life. It's a long process that we never grow out of. It's a following. It's a foot by foot. We never kind of get there. We're kind of in a process of following as we go. Um, being formed by the gospel means seeing the story not just as the entrance in the Christian life. It's not like, oh, these are the basics. We never go beyond the basics. <laughs> the basics are profound and fundamental and will always be profound and fundamental because there's nothing else to get beyond to. It's all-encompassing. It's all-embracing. So there's a little diagram that might be helpful here. When we start out, we have that top there. Um, if you go back one there, Will. Uh, so the top line is as we discover... God's glory. So all the good parts about God, like he's just, he's holy, he's faithful, he's forgiving, he's merciful. And that bottom line is as we discover a little bit more about ourselves. We actually aren't as great as maybe we say we are. Um, we might fail maybe a couple times. Um, but then how, do we, how, how does that God bridge that gap between where we are and where God is? And that is through the cross of Jesus that we've already talked about. Now that's great. And that's how we enter the Christian life, is we understand that and we embrace that. The, um, but that's not where we stop, because then we mature, and then we grow, and we see God is actually even better than I thought. Like, then I thought he was great, but now he's even better. And I realized with my own life, I'm actually a lot worse than I even thought like five years ago. And so, again, the cross is the thing that takes that up. And then we grow and get more mature, and we kind of go off the map. God is like, you can't even put him on a scale, and I am like, you can't even put me on a scale. And then um, the cross looms larger. So what we have here is um, 
We can never make the cross big enough in our lives because what it does is it shows that we can be honest with ourselves with where we're at and all of our failings. Like Paul, we could say we were persecutors, we were blasphemers, we were the worst. And then we can also see God as the best, as holy and just and loving. And the cross is, is what allows us to bridge those two. So the cross can never be large enough in our lives because what the cross says is it tells us how far away we are from God, how great God is, and yet how close, and in spite of that, how close he can be. There's a theologian named um, Henri Nouwen who called this path downward mobility. Basically said the, down, the way down is the way up. Understanding who we are and understanding who God is, that's what maturity looks like. So Christian maturity doesn't necessarily first mean looking better on the outside. What it first means is looking more dependent, looking like we have to rely more on God to come through for us, looking um, like we have to force ourselves to go to prayer and go to the Bible because we know how clueless we really are by ourselves. Now, if this is true, that means we have nothing to bring to the table, that God has everything. We don't hold claim on anything except really our own darkness. So if everything is God's, that means everything is God's. Do our calendars or wallets reflect that? Is our time and money gospel formed or is it deformed? Do we only make space for others or for church after we've made space for ourselves? I mean, God doesn't own 10% of our stuff. He owns all of our stuff. So how are we using all of our things for his glory? And a hint, that doesn't mean just giving money to the church. It means being generous with all sorts of things. If we get the gospel, we will be generous because we'll understand how much we've been given. Or, or what about our attention? When we wake up in the morning, are we formed more by our phones or the word? Do we talk to God in the morning or are we just kind of swiping away? Did you know you need God more than you need coffee? This is coming from a coffee-obsessed person. That's actually true. I halfway believe it as I say it. You know you, get, you need God more than you need sleep? I can't find time for God. Well, sometimes it might mean going to bed a little bit earlier or going to waking up a little bit earlier, as horrible as both of those things sound. If you can't find the time, you must fight for it because here's the reality. You will be formed by something. We are being formed by stuff. Only the gospel and what we talked about forms us into the humans we want to be because only the gospel is about the story of Jesus in our lives. Everything else leads us to being deformed. What kinds of people are we becoming? And this hope is not just for us. This is the hope of the world. Typically in the way that God is generous, he always gives us more than we can contain ourselves. So in verse 14, uh, Paul, Paul says, The grace of our Lord was poured out, on me under, uh, poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So we find that it is grace and the gospel that's poured out on us like a deluge about what's going on outside right now. We were meant to share it with others. In verse 16, we read that Paul's an example for those who will follow Jesus. What is Paul's example? It's not first of a good person here. He's not saying, hey, I'm really great. Do the things that I'm good at. He's saying, I'm a really horrible person, but God is amazing. Let's follow him. So the hope of the world does not depend on how good you are. It depends on how good God is. That's what we point to. It's not our responsibility to convert others. It, that's God's work. What we get to do is to present our lives to others, a canvas through which God's grace has been poured abundantly out on. And this is what being a good witness is all about. Because where we are, good people, bad people, in-between people, our role as people who follow Jesus is to point to God's goodness, not our own. Remember that downward mobility thing. 
Our line doesn't go up eventually. It's not like, oh, eventually that line goes up and trends towards God. It doesn't work that way. That means we're humble. That means we're servants. And when people treat us like servants, we don't get offended. When people treat us like people who are humble, we don't get all off put. We have everything we already need and more. There's no reason we should be righteously indignant. And this is the hope of the world. Not openness, not loving families, not people living with middle-class ideals, not in starting a church, not in being a good churchgoer. The hope of the world is found when God's mercy and justice kiss at the cross and when we find ourselves in him made new. And when that's true, that's when we do things like start new churches and hopefully have good families and hopefully be open to others and loving others. Redeemer exists insofar that we are part of this equation here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Once we start adding, we're in danger. Everything we do, any program we might be a part of, every missional community, every Sunday service is meant to push us on towards Jesus plus nothing equals everything because we're so quick to add something to that nothing. We all want it to be just a little bit small thing, this. When we do, we need to ask Jesus to bring us back into realignment with his story, the gospel. And the gospel is the story of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now this is our hope, the hope of the world, and for the glory of God. Look how quick Paul turns to praise in verse 17. He says, he just can't help it, it's kind of like spurts out of him. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. So the gospel is the story of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit putting, in, putting a plan into place to bring them the most glory. Since we have been created to give God glory, our flourishing is actually found in this. We're created that this be the case. And our lives should be songs to the king, the king who has always existed, who can never die, who cannot be contained in the visible world. The only God, none like him, may he get the honor, may he get the glory, may our hearts resonate with praise to the king, removing all glory seeking from ourselves, removing our selfishness, removing our shame, rightly placing where it belongs at the foot of God, the one who loves us abundantly to pour out his grace upon us, more than we can handle ourselves. On the cross, Jesus took on all our deformities and put them to death through his own. Through his resurrection, he gives us life and is now reforming us into who we were created to be. And now, where he is right now, is he's reigning. He is in charge of this world. He's ruling. And through his Holy Spirit, he gives us the new hearts that we need to be part of these new creations, to have our desires, our lives, our motivations transformed. And when we don't measure up, and we won't often, we, like Paul, can be honest with who we are. We don't have to cover that up. We can say we were blasphemers. We can say we were the worst. We can truly be free with who we are because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on, tri on Jesus. And when we take our broken selves to him, we ask God to realign us, and he does. This is what a good God does. This is who we get to worship. And he's the one who took all the cost, and we're the ones who get all the benefit. This is the story of what the gospel is. He redeemed us and is with us. Now, people who are formed by the gospel, what do they look like? Well, I think just two things came to mind as I thought about this. One is they're content. They aren't perfect, but they're in a loving relationship with a loving father, and there's a contentment there that can't be found somewhere else. They're satisfied with life, even though there might be frustrations. And also, they're generous, as Paul kind of talks about here. They're free to give, and they happily do so because they're so secure in this world because of the father's love. They're free to sacrifice. Out of, we don't sacrifice out of an insecurity. We sacrifice out of security and out of love. 
And that's what we get to celebrate when we come to the table. A perfect God who takes imperfect people out of their own darkness and isolation and brings them into his family where life reigns, where we are formed by the good news that God has come. So those who come and celebrate this meal together know that um, we who do that, we know we don't have anything to offer, and we know that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we're prone to forget this, and that's why it's of utmost importance for us to do things like this over and over and over again. That's why we meet together every week. That's why we ought to be praying and in the Word every day, because we forget this story over and over and over again. But through the Word and through talking to God uh, about His story through prayer, and this is also another reason why Jesus tells us to come to the table in communion, is to remember what he's done. He said, do this to remember me. If we're formed by other stories, we will be held as captives, and it will deform us. But if we are formed by the gospel, we'll be captivated by Jesus, and only he has the power to create us to be fully formed humans.